Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you want to hop on your phone and go to your Bible app. Or you can go to the summitstl.info slash notes, and it'll take you to exactly where we're going today and all the information. So let me go ahead and read this for us. And I want you to listen for all the crazy things that happen. There's a lot of crazy things that happen in these verses. On the following day, when they came from Bethany... He was hungry, Jesus, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out to the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, and it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received, and it will be yours. And then whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1986, a man named, named Richard Feynman, I think that's how you pronounce it, dramatically challenged the way NASA was explaining the explosion of the Challenger space shuttle. In essence, what he did was he had taken a small O-ring. If you remember the shuttle, they deduced that what had happened was an O-ring had frozen and it wasn't adjusting the temperature. He had taken a small O-ring and placed it in a glass of ice. And when NASA, before this committee, said that temperature hadn't impacted the O-ring, he surprisingly took the O-ring out of this ice to show everyone not only that it didn't expand, but that it was an incredibly brittle, and he broke it. And he looked back at the NASA guy and said, so you're telling us that this O-ring could expand. The guy stumbled, it became a significant moment in history, and actually the next day in all the newspapers, they declared that Richard Feynman had totally made this guy look like a fool. It was a moment that people always remembered. I'm curious, actually, to ask this 
for those of you who were born before 1990, which is probably about a third of us, or maybe two-thirds of us. Does, does anyone remember that? Does anyone? Okay, yeah, okay, I see some hands. In 2007, Steve Jobs dramatically unveiled to the world his dream to reinvent the phone. He put this picture on the screen and he said, everything you now know and understand about the phone is about to be reinvented. He spoke for an hour and 30 minutes about the revolutionary new features that the phone would have, saying over and over and over again that Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And the next day, in newspapers all across the world, people declared, Apple is reinventing the phone, and it became a moment in history that people always remember. Do you know what a star moment is? Have you ever heard of that before? A star moment? It stands for something they'll always remember. Something they'll always remember. It's a moment that is so profound, so dramatic, that it becomes all that is talked about. It's a moment that brings dramatization, memorable sound bites, compelling images, and shock to the audience's hearts and minds. We all want to have star moments in our lives. I can tell you as a preacher, I want every Sunday to be a star moment. I want every Sunday people to walk out of here and go, that's something I'll remember. I mean, that's just how it is. And we all want that. I'm not the only one. We want that in our work. We want that with our kids, right? We want our kids to be like, when, when we're nice, right? Not the other way, but when we do something really loving to them, that they're, they're going to go, yeah, they'll always remember that about me. We all want star moments. The temple for the people of Israel was the centerpiece of their existence, the temple was assigned to all of the world who the Israelites were and who their God was. Jesus now comes on the scene for the last week of his life. It's a turning point in history. It's the crowning point of all of history. He's changing the trajectory of history and impacting the larger narrative of history that Genesis chapter 3.15 had pointed to. And yes, we might look at many of the things that happened in the last week of Jesus' life as a star moment, but this moment that we're talking about today was for sure dramatic, for sure memorable, for sure compelling, and definitely, definitely shocking. And it was a moment that was so shocking to the audience's minds and hearts and to Mark, the author of this, that he wants it to be as shocking to you and to me as well. He is setting up for us a star moment, something that we and they should always remember. Why? Because in order to usher in a whole new way of thinking about how communion with God works, that would be clear there has to be a dramatic component to how Jesus helps us understand this. You see, 
we'll get to this in a little bit, but Israel, they had corrupted the point and the purpose of the temple. And they thought that what the Messiah was going to do was he was going to come to Jerusalem and purge Jerusalem, purge the temple of the Gentiles, of aliens, of foreigners, and the Romans. But Jesus' action was exactly the opposite. Jesus doesn't clear the temple of Gentiles. He clears the temple for Gentiles. Jesus is establishing a whole new way of understanding the temple. And he's inviting you and me to experience that today as well. So what we're going to look at this morning is the picture, the sandwich, and the call. The picture, the sandwich, and the call. Object lessons can be cheesy. Maybe you've seen some cheesy ones. I brought a puzzle because I could have done this brilliant, cheesy illustration by taking a couple pieces of puzzle and holding them together and say, we need each other to accomplish things. And you put the puzzle piece together and it makes a beautiful thing, right? That would be cheesy. That's why I'm not going to do it. <laughs> After Jesus' triumphant entry, Jesus now steps into this idea of having an object lesson. He, he teaches his disciples and his followers, the people of Israel and us, through this object lesson. And at first glance, this object lesson of cursing a fig tree is at minimum peculiar. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree that's leafy. He has no fruit, and his language is blunt. Peter doesn't mince any words. He says, Jesus cursed it. And I think this is the Jesus that many of us kind of think like walks around, like that he's going to walk around, and when he doesn't see something that he likes, he's like, and he zaps it, and it dies. That's kind of that's what we want him to do in our lives, isn't it? We're like, Jesus, will you just come into my life and use your power and like, boom, and I'm all fixed and saved. Some people have really struggled with this metaphor, this, this picture, this object lesson. In fact, I read some articles and essays from people who left the faith because of this very thing that Jesus did. Why would Jesus be so upset with a tree that he would lose his composure to destroy it? Or is Jesus doing something very significant here? Well, the first thing that it helps to know is that actually all throughout the Old Testament, prophets used the fig tree as a symbol of Israel, especially when they were disobedient and due judgment. In fact, what's happening here, I believe, is a direct connection to Jeremiah chapter 8. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah said. He said, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. That's Jeremiah prophesying about Israel, talking about them in relation to a fig and fig trees. Because Israel had not grown or bore fruit, but had rejected what God gave them, they were bound for judgment. 
And Jesus here is saying the leafy fig tree with all of its promise of fruit is as descriptive as the people of Israel represented by the temple. That despite the temple having religious activity, it had become a place of corruption whose time was now ending. It's interesting. The second thing to point out in this passage is a tiny little subtle word. In verse 13, Mark writes, And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, that word season, it's an interesting word. It can actually also mean time. It was not the time for figs. There's one other moment in the Gospel of Mark where he uses that word. And it's the very first sentence of Jesus in Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. Now, if we've learned anything by studying Mark, I'll say it one more time. Mark does everything intentionally. There is nothing that Mark doesn't write that he doesn't want us to see. And right here, he's trying to show us this very thing. There is no fruit on the tree because the time has passed. The leafy fig tree with all of its promise of fruit is as descriptive as a temple. It, it, despite its religious activity, it is really a place of corruption whose time has ended. And so the cursing of the fig tree is an object lesson. And Jesus is saying this. The temple no longer represents the way people will commune with God. It has become corrupted, and God is going to judge Israel and change how communion with God works. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Brian, you got all of that from Jesus saying, curse you, O fig tree? Well, that would be a spectacular question because we need the sandwich to help us grasp that. The sandwich. I talked about this way back in Mark chapter 5 when we studied it. It's been quite some time, so let me come back because sometimes it's hard for me to remember what I spoke on two weeks ago, let alone six months ago. In Mark chapter 5, he does something. Mark has a literary technique it's actually a literal thing people write about in theology called the Markian uh, literary techniques called a sandwich. And what he does is he takes two events that have seemingly no connection at all, and he sandwiches them. So he takes one event, he switches to a whole different event, and then he sandwiches it back to the first event, which we saw here, right? That he curses the tree. He throws the tables in the temple, then Peter sees that the tree has been cursed. And what Mark's trying to help us understand is he's saying, look, you can't understand the crust without understanding the meat, right? You're not going to understand what's on the outside unless you understand what's going on on the inside. So let's ask, Jesus, what does Jesus, what he does in the temple, does this teach us that Israel will be judged, that their time has passed? And something better has come. So as we understand this sandwich, 
What's important here to see is that what we've learned about this passage is we have compartmentalized these two encounters. And I maybe want to prove to you how we've done that. See, many of us learned that what Jesus did in the temple was he was just mad about them selling stuff. And we may have even heard sermons on the commercialization of the temple, and Jesus was there to just make it right again, to, to tell them, hey, I'm going to throw all this stuff out. I can't believe you're doing this. And maybe you've even heard as crazy as like, we shouldn't sell t-shirts in the lobby of the church because that's what we're doing. We're just commercializing Jesus. And what's gone wrong with the world? So is Jesus just mad about the commercialization of the temple here? Well, I would argue he's at least that. Sure, perhaps he is that. He's upset about that. But what he was doing was he was not removing its impurities to restore its rightful function. That would just be being upset about the commercialization. If we see it in the sandwich, we understand that there's a judgment coming upon Israel and an end of something. Jesus is not restoring the temple. He's actually pronouncing its doom. The fig tree is being judged, and like the fig tree, the temple's function is withered. Now, it's important to say it's not withering because of God's intention towards it, it's how the people have corrupted it. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Brian, I thought the temple was a good thing. Well, it's complicated. You see, God promised to bless Israel through the temple if ever Israel began to take the temple for granted, to use the temple and the promises attached to it in some immoral, immoral or unjust way, then the temple itself could be judged and would be judged. That's what Jeremiah was telling us. So we should ask, how was Israel taking the temple for granted? And I'll suggest to you two ways. We see it in the text and how Jesus calls them out. If you look at the verse 17, he has two sentences that he says there. One is a question and one is a statement. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So the first aspect there that we see is he's referring actually to Isaiah 56. My house shall be called a house, shouldn't my house be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And what had happened in Israel was the temple had been intended to symbolize God's dwelling with Israel for the sake of the world, but the Israelites used it to symbolize God's exclusion from the world. That in essence, what had happened in Israel was that the purpose of the temple, that the intention of the temple, the way God wanted to use the temple was to say, look how good and glorious and wonderful I am and I'm here for the world. But what Israel did was they turned it and they said, look how good and great and awesome we are. You don't belong here. The second thing that happened that he's calling out is that second verse, but you have made it a den of robbers, which again comes 
from the book of Jeremiah. And what he's saying there is that in the temple, you pretend like you're pursuing God. You pretend like offering these sacrifices covers your sins when there is no seriousness in your heart about following the king and the creator of the universe. Two things. One, self-righteousness. The other, hiding. It should cause us at this moment, as we will, to pause and reflect honestly on our own lives and our own church. We need to ask these same two questions. The first is this. Are we joining God for the sake of the world or the exclusion of the world? What God intends for us is to go out and seek the flourishing of the hurting and the marginalized and the struggling and the needy. Are we more worried and concerned about people's flourishing or are we more worried about people knowing how wrong they are? I heard a great and interesting quote this week that really struck me. They said, today's generation is not asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, is Christianity good? Let that land on you just for one second. The generation of today isn't asking, is Christianity true? It is true. It is the truth. And I'm not in any way insinuating that we shouldn't care about its truth. But I'm wondering, in some ways, the corruption that has infiltrated and had infiltrated Israel some 2,000 years ago has infiltrated and corrupted us. That we're more concerned about telling people what's true as opposed to pursuing and caring about their flourishing. If we could just very quickly remember back to Jeremiah 29, when God spoke to the people in Israel who were in exile, who were in a very evil and corrupt society, and God said to them, I want you to seek the flourishing of the city. Now, you can imagine that back then, Joe Schmo Israelite was in his room hearing that from Jeremiah going, wait a second. If I help my business owner flourish, that's only going to help the temple that is not God's temple to put money in that temple to help something that is against God. And you can hear him going, no, 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 that's not what I want to do, which is exactly what led the Israelites to this place of saying, the temple is for me and I am great and you are not allowed. There's lots to reflect on here. Uh, it leads us back, we've talked about this before, but to remind us that for many of us, we want life and the journey to be black and white, but Christianity is filled with tensions. And our generation today is asking, is it good? Because it might be true, but what I see is not that you care about flourishing. 
Well, the second thing we should consider and ask as Jesus was confronting the people then is simply this. Are we authentic or are we putting on a show? Inventory time. Let me ask some questions that are convicting to me. Do you come to church and pretend like you have the perfect family while neglecting them on Monday morning? Do you show up to church and then indulge your appetite for food, for lust, for money, for sex on Monday, Tuesday, and so on? Do we hold grudges? Do we protect our reputations? Do we keep secrets? My friends, if we are working hard to keep people out and we're putting on a show, then all we're doing is making the same mistake Israel made 2,000 years ago. And Jesus came to change that because he knew what we were prone to. Jesus had to come and bring in a whole new way. Now, part of that way is judgment. He had to bring judgment upon Israel and what had happened. And that's what makes this part of the star moment something that they would always remember, that Jesus didn't just curse a fig tree and throw some tables around in the temple. Jesus came and cursed a fig tree and threw some tables around to say, this is the end of this. There is something new that is coming. And that's what makes a star moment a star moment. It isn't just about how bad things are. It's about what God is about to do. Jesus is saying the time has come for something better to unveil a new way, God's new way of life, God's new way of order, God's new design, God's new way of communion. In essence, what had happened was the temple was a place and a practice, but now what Jesus is saying is the temple is a person and a people. That, that for Israel, their whole journey was making the temple out to be a place where we practice something, and now the new ushering in, the new plan that Jesus has for the people of the world to bring God's kingdom to bear is through a person and a people. What Jesus does is he's declaring, I am the new and true temple. It's what he says to the disciples. Have faith in God. Who has the right to change the temple? The Israelites would know the answer to that question is God and God alone. And when Jesus says, I'm changing this, have faith in God, he's saying, have faith in me, that I am the one. That's, that's why the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to destroy him. They're like, who is this guy? The old temple is finished, and now the people are knit together. We are knit together as a sanctuary. We now take the presence of God to the world. And how do we do that? Well, Jesus gives us a call to follow this better way. Three practical applications. He says three things in verses 22 through 25. 
He says, believe in the new temple, pray, and forgive. Believe in the new temple. The call is to look to Jesus as the new way to commune with God, the one who has come, the mediator, the one who can give true life. He then says to pray. Jesus offers some pretty powerful words in this passage about moving mountains and receiving what we ask. I think what Jesus is saying here is he's meeting the disciples and his hearers right where they're at. And he's saying, do you struggle with keeping people out? Do you struggle with hiding? Then come before God and present your request to him for change. And he will move that mountain in your life. Where are you self-righteous and seeing others better than yourself? Where are you putting on your show? If you come before Jesus and ask him to move that, to show you the beauty of his grace, to show you how much he cares for you and loves you, it will be done. And then he says, forgive. In the same way that you have been forgiven, forgive others. Jesus comes on the scene to offer something so beautiful, a new life, a new hope, that he calls all who have ears to hear, to believe, to pray, and to forgive. My friends, when you have a vision of something so beautiful that you have a a hope, a joy, something that you can connect to, when you have a vision of this communion with Jesus where you can be utterly authentic and accepted, what happens to us is we then start to think about removing the obstacles that keep us from doing that. Let me give you a silly illustration here. I'm trying to set up for us this path here. In a few moments, I'm going to actually ask you to enter in with me into a very serious moment of prayer where you're coming before God to confess your struggle, to believe in Jesus as the true temple and ask him to move mountains in your lives. And, and what we need in order to do that is we need to have what we sang about this morning, the future of heaven, the, the hope that we have of a world where things are the way they're meant to be. And when we have that hope and that vision, when, we're, when we understand that that's what God is working towards, then we can come to this place of confessing and believing and asking. Silly illustration. Winter's coming. And on one side of our garage, we have all this stuff. Who has that garage? Yeah, okay. Oh, thank you, everybody. But I have a vision of being able to park... What, you guys are laughing. You have this vision too. You have it too. A vision of being able to park the car in that spot. So when winter, which is coming, comes, that I, I won't have to scrape the ice off the windshield. And I, I won't have to turn the car on for 15 minutes just so it can be just a little bit warm when I get in it. And I can tell you, let me give you hope, my friends, 
that that vision has driven me in the last six months to actually start clearing out that side of my garage. Yeah, amen. And it is almost cleared. It will happen. You can ask me. I'm actually, I'm really wanting to do it for my daughter, Aubrey, so that she can park there. So it's really a vision for her, but we don't need to go there. That kind of ruins the metaphor. But (laughs) the point is, there's this vision for me that's helping me take action. Jesus' star moment was so that we would have a vision and a hope for something better a place that we could commune with God in pure authenticity, and then we would join God in his mission to care and love for others. That would come, What would come out of our hearts would not be frustration and anger and disappointment and corruption, but would come from us would be the fruit of his spirit, which is love and joy and peace and hope and gentleness and self-control. My friends, this was Jesus' star moment. It was a moment that was so profound and so dramatic that it should be all that we should talk about. That Jesus didn't just curse a fig tree because he was mad and flip some tables because he was mad. He was coming to change everything about how communion with God happens. It's interesting I believe that those are the star moments that Jesus wants to have through us. What if the star moments that we really need and want are the moments where, because of our intimacy and connection with Jesus, because we came before him and said, Jesus, will you change how angry I am? Will you change how much I pursue my own desires? Will you change how much I am self-righteous and prideful? And will you change the lusts of my heart? And that when he starts to move the mountains in our lives and we then go into the world and people start going, what happened to you? That those are the star moments that he wants to do through us that the things that people will always remember are when they see the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ flowing from us. If the world saw that in the people of God, they would always remember and they would long to be in the presence of that temple Jesus too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Jesus and his deep passion for us to know and commune with him in a way where we could be authentic. So, Father, we're going to, in a moment here, ask you to move mountains in our lives. And we're going to come with some incredibly bold requests. And I now, in this moment, give thanks that you are going to hear and move. And pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.